Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Although one of the grayest of American cities, Cleveland was one of the earliest places in the country to embrace the colorful, ultra-modernist art of the Fauves and the Blue Rider Group, doing so even before the Armory Show in 1913. Much of this activity came about through the activities of the Cocoon Club, whose members formed the city's first radically modern art group, the Cleveland Succession, and also staged an annual mask ball with outrageous posters and costumes, or lack thereof, that not only ran afoul of the Vice Squad, but also introduced the entire city to modern art. In this lecture, recorded on June 16, 2014, as part of the Works in Progress series at the National Gallery of Art, Henry Adams explores the emergence of ultra-modern artists in Cleveland, their surprising links with movie posters and commercial art, the ways in which they challenge the artistic and social mores of their time, the demise of this group during the Great Depression, and the lasting impact of this movement on several noted figures in American art, as well as, more widely, on the imagery of American popular culture. Thank you, Charlie. And I'd like to talk today about the renaissance of uh, modernism in Cleveland, which came about in the first three decades of the 20th century, largely through the activities of a club of Cleveland artists, the Cocoon Club. And in fact, um, though this is an area where more research needs to be done, it seems as though aside from New York, Cleveland was probably the only city in the United States, which had an active exhibiting group of modern artists uh, influenced by the Fauves, the Blue Rider Group, and even the Cubists, uh, even before the Armory Show. Um, And I might say that uh, much of the research uh, on Cleveland art that I'm drawing on was done by uh, a retired child psychologist, Larry Waldman, who's become a great enthusiast of Cleveland art and has done some uh, pretty remarkable Uh, documentary research. Uh, Cleveland vies with Seattle for the title of the grayest, most overcast American city. And in the first three decades of the 20th century, it was even grayer than it is now because steel mills and factories were then roaring at full capacity, belching great plumes of smoke and grit uh, that darkened the air. Cleveland was also a conservative city where both executives and factory workers dressed in drab colors and labor and discipline were the order of the day. Uh, Saturday was still a work day and Sunday was reserved for going to church. Once a year in Cleveland, however, the lid came off for a festival of dance and color, the Cocoon Club Ball. And even today, there are legends of the revelers who came to dance, some in bright costumes and some dressed only in talcum powder or even less. And in fact, a little research, uh, which I'll show you some of it uh, shortly, shows that many of these legends are rooted in fact for uh, scrapbooks uh, survive with photographs of the celebrants. Uh, These record Hundreds of people who came in costumes worthy of the Ballet Russe and others who came, uh, the courageous few who came only in body paint. Shock value was clearly part of the delight of the evening, and uh, for just one night a year, Cleveland forgot that it was Cleveland and became a sort of bacchanalic festival held in some exotic, faraway place, preferably one uh, with relaxed morals such as the Latin Quarter of Paris, the Sea Palace of Neptune, uh, the Pharaoh's Court, ancient Egypt, or the Persia of the Arabian Nights. Uh, 
But to view the evening as just a debauch is to miss its deeper purpose. For interestingly, it was in good part through the Cocoon Club and its annual ball in Cleveland. Uh, And because of developments in Cleveland, much of uh, the rest of America was affected as well, uh, that Cleveland was seduced into a love affair with modern art and was persuaded that while such art might be a bit crazy, a bit mentally unhinged, it was also eye-catching, invigorating, and fun. Um, Today, the posters of the Cocoon Club uh, which are often reminiscent of the work of Leanne Baxt, but with a sort of Art Deco American accent, uh, have started to uh, fetch fairly large prices when they come up for sale at auction houses such as uh, Aspire or Rachel Davis Fine Arts or Swan Galleries. Uh, but as it happens, this is only part of the story. I think what's fascinating is how over the course of a decade or so the members of the Cocoon Club changed the artistic taste of the city and, in fact, had wider impact. Uh, the Cocooners pumped color and life into the work that uh, Cleveland painters showed at local art galleries and at the annual May Show in the newly opened Cleveland Museum of Art. And they established a taste in a market for a sort of modern art that had been considered completely crazy only a few years before. More largely, they reshaped the look of movie posters and billboards and advertisements, both locally and nationally, and, in short, transformed American visual culture for an audience of millions. Color is the word that comes up repeatedly in accounts of the Cocoon Club. Before the Cocoon Club, the art of the heartland of America was mostly in shades of brown and gray, and after the Cocoon Club did its work, it had adopted the colors of the peacock and the rainbow. Uh, I think what's fascinating is that all of this happened more or less by accident since the Cocoon Club was initially founded with very different and much more uh, limited uh, purposes. This is a watercolor by William Summer from the 1920s. The background of all this is that by the turn of the century, Cleveland had become one of America's greatest centers of printing, And while exact figures aren't available, it seems to have had a volume of printing that surpassed even New York. Uh, The reasons were manifold, but two were particularly telling. One was that the largest uh, manufacturer of printing presses, uh, Harris Printing, was based in in, in, uh, Cleveland. And in the days before Federal Express, if your press broke down, uh, it was very helpful to be able to Uh, be near where you could get spare parts uh, rather than to have have to wait a week uh, for the parts to arrive. The other was that in an age before digital communication, when a print run was orchestrated from a single place, Cleveland was ideally suited for distribution to the rest of the country. And thus, for example, in the early years of Fortune, Time, and Life magazine, Henry Luce Uh, established the headquarters of his company in Cleveland, which was the ideal place uh, to distribute these magazines. The birth of the Cocoon Club uh, was due to a specific event in uh, this uh, evolution. In 1905, Otis Lithography, which had specialized in theatrical and circus posters, landed a gigantic contract to produce posters for a new entertainment medium that was replacing vaudeville, the movies. 
Specific numbers are hard to come by, but by 1913, or in 1913, Otis published three and a half million posters for a now-forgotten movie called The Battle of Waterloo. By that time, uh, the plant took up four entire city blocks. We know that by the late 1920s, it had the capacity to produce 55 million posters a month, which comes to a little over a billion posters every two years. They were basically producing movie posters not only for the United States, but for Europe and Asia and uh, other continents as well. At the time, while they were based on photographs, movie posters were drawn and colored by hand basically drawn freehand with a crayon on a lithographic stone, as you can see in this photograph of one of the draftsmen at work, Elmer Brubeck. Uh, To do this work required extremely skilled skilled artists and craftsmen, uh, and it was clear to the management of Otis Lithography that if they wanted to keep their contract with the movie studios, they needed to uh, hire uh, talented people to produce uh, the work. So in 1905, with the ink on their new poster contract hardly dry, uh, the management at Otis launched a corporate raid. They went to New York and hired away from the Ottman Company, which was New York's leading lithography firm, uh, two of the nation's most gifted and experienced poster artists, Carl Mullman and William Summer. Uh, Carl Mullman, uh, who originally was an Ohio boy, was the manager at the Yachtman Company, and he also was closely associated with the first major modernist group in 20th century art, the Ashcan School. Uh, the Ashcan School, the uh, group of artists, uh, the eight uh, centered around Robert Henry, held the first major artistic success du scandale of the 20th century. And it was Molman who introduced the various members of the eight to the to lithography. Here he appears in a humorous print by John Sloan titled uh, Amateur Lithographers, in which they're huffing and puffing on a small press together. Notably, this print dates from 1908, the very year of the famous exhibition of the eight. Along with Molman came his most gifted draftsman, William Summer, who became one of the leading Cleveland modernists. Uh, And when he came to uh, Cleveland, it was clearly with the understanding that he would introduce a bolder, freer, more modern look into the lithographs that they produce, make them more up-to-date and visually uh, arresting. As a lithographer, Summer was renowned for his virtuosity, particularly the skill and confidence with which he could produce the outline of a face or figure with a single, confident, flowing line. Uh, But Summer was also an alcoholic, although intermittently so, and his working relationship with Mullman was predicated on the understanding that periodically, after working faithfully and steadily for months, he would simply disappear for a week or ten days and go off on a drinking binge and then return when it was over. Um, These are some William Summer drawings done when he was a student at Munich. Interestingly, when he studied at Munich, he studied draftsmanship but did not uh, study uh, painting. Uh, Mullman and Summer were the principal initiators of the Cocoon Club, uh, which held its first uh, meeting uh, in the summer of 1911 and officially formed in August with Mullman as president and Summer as vice president. 
and an article in 19, of 1911 in Cleveland 10 topics announced uh, the creation of the venture. Its principal goal was simply to provide a place where artists could hold drawing sessions from the new model and more generally to encourage interest in art and modern art. Uh, interestingly, most of the members were commercial artists rather than teachers at the local art schools. And, in fact, they specifically wanted to avoid the local schools, which uh, basically had an extremely academic uh, mode of teaching, very Germanic, based on the way schools in Munich had been run in the 1870s. And the Cocoon Club members wanted something uh, more uh, free and flexible. Uh, the model for this venture was the Kit Kat Club in New York, which in turn was inspired by the Kit Kat Club in London, England, founded in the, in the 18th century by Joshua Reynolds, Benjamin West, and other notable artists from the Royal Academy, and located in the rooms of Christopher Catling in Shire Lane near Temple Bar, who baked delicious meat pies. The artists adorned the walls with portraits of each other, and since Kit Kat's rooms had very low ceilings, they were all halflings. As a result, before long, the name Kit Kat became the favored name for any uh, half-length portrait in the 18th century. Because of the Kit Kat Club in England and because of the sound of the letter K in English has a slightly funny sound and consequently often appears in Humorous references to places like Podunk and Saskatchewan and Timbuktu, it became popular to think up names for artist clubs that had only K sounds. And when you're writing the history of the Cocoon Club, it's appropriate to use crazy spelling and do things like spell Cleveland with a K. Um, it was uh, Carl Mullman. Uh, sorry, who came up with the idea of using the word cocoon to symbolize an awakening, to celebrate the emergence from cocoon to butterfly, both for the artists in the club and for the city of Cleveland. And here you can see uh, the cocoon logo, which portrays this transformative process. Uh, here are the officers of the club, with Mullman as president, Summer as vice president, um, and in this period, uh, the use of nude models clearly had a somewhat risque quality in Cleveland, and this is something that was sort of quietly uh, publicized throughout the entire uh, history of the club and no doubt uh, contributed to the reasons why it was so fascinating for Clevelanders. And some of the drawings made at the Cocoon Club were notable uh, works of art in their own right. This is a figure study by William Summer of a Cocoon Club model. Um, I won't attempt a full lit listing, but basically uh, most of the, uh, in fact, all of the notable modern artists in Cleveland during the first decade of the 20th century were members of the Cocoon Club, with the exception of women, since it was a male-only society. Uh, but interestingly, there was another club, the Women's Art Club, which was formed just a month after the Cocoon Club and probably inspired by it. And the Cocoon Club did show the work of women artists uh, in their uh, exhibitions. Um, and basically, 
this is the transition that takes place in a five-year period between 1908 and 1913 uh, from a Ashcan school style, which would have been the reigning uh, mode of modernism in 1908, to a Fauve style, which was the most advanced form of modernism just five years later. Uh, and uh, I'll just run through these uh, influences in sequence. The first is the Ashcan school, familiar uh, with the work of George Bellows, just shown here at the gallery in a magnificent uh, exhibition. And they were uh, the first American artist to sort of directly engage modern urban life. I've mentioned that Molman was closely associated with the Ashcan School. And this is a portrait of his son done by Summer right around the time he moved uh, to Cleveland. This is another Cleveland artist, August uh, Beely, who worked for the Sherwin-Williams Paint uh, Company and is basically looking at the window of their building, which is still uh, standing at the Cuyahoga River and painting the city in an Ashcan School style. And here you can see how Summer is transforming this, uh, turning this kind of rugged realism towards movie posters to create images that have a kind of toughness and authenticity that would have been new for that period. Uh, the first sort of major uh, push towards modernism uh, comes in 1910 uh, when um, a uh, Cleveland artist, uh, Abe Warshawski, who had grown up in the city, returned to Cleveland from France with a group of brightly colored Impressionist works, uh, including uh, some that were executed uh, with a palette knife. Basically, Warshawski had been associated with other progressive uh, American and French artists, such as uh, Samuel Halpert, who later married the art dealer Edith Halpert. He also was very close to Thomas Hart Benton and Stanton MacDonald Wright, who later developed uh, synchromism. He basically is working in an Impressionist style, uh, which uh, by today's standards does not seem uh, very radical, but was completely startling by the standards of uh, Cleveland art, who were accustomed to the dark-toned paintings of the Ashcan School and of uh, Munich uh, painters. And uh, this will give you a sense of sort of a typical Munich painting next to a Warshawski uh, landscape. Interestingly, Warshawski's paintings were uh, very controversial uh, when he attempted to show his work at an exhibition of the at the Rofont Club in Cleveland, he was initially excluded until Henry Keller, who was a member, uh, threatened to resign if they were not uh, included. Basically, a group of young artists associated with the Cocoon Club were so interested that they persuaded Warshawski to teach a class devoted to modern color theory and ways of handling color. Basically, Warshawski knew about the color wheel and Chevrolet's theories of the simultaneous contrast of color and uh, so forth. And the electrifying effect of Warshawski's teachings is evident in uh, paintings such as this William Summer of 
a cliff in Lake Erie where you can see how he was immediate convert to a post-impressionist palette. Uh, similarly, Henry Keller, who had an outdoor painting school at Berlin Heights, uh, became a convert to this heightened uh, palette and passed it on uh, to his students. Here you can see uh, two portraits by Summer of his son done just a few years apart, and you can see how quickly he was transformed by this new approach. And it was work of this sort that was featured in the first exhibition of a modernist group in Cleveland, the so-called Cleveland Secessionists. The title, of course, comes from the Viennese uh, Secessionists, uh, most of whom were members of the Cocoon Club. And as you can see in this cartoon uh, in the Cleveland uh, press, uh, this created a minor scandal in Cleveland, and it was described as no place for someone uh, with a weak heart. Um, here's a detail. I might say that one of the things that is interesting about modern innovations is how humor seems to play a role in it. Uh, to us today, if we'd gone to this exhibition, it would have seemed a relatively straightforward exhibition of Impressionist uh, painting. But here you see someone is already making a Jackson Pollock uh, in the uh, cartoon that uh, the idea of doing something outrageous uh, was clearly sparked by this show. Um, and um, in this period, draftsmen at Otis were quite well paid. So if you worked for a year, you could save an, up enough money to paint and travel for a year in Europe. And so for a decade or so, uh, Abe Warshawski was a key contact for Cleveland uh, artists, particularly the poster artists at Otis, who were going uh, to... Europe and would go to Europe, um, stay with him in Paris, go with him to paint uh, in Normandy. Uh, here you see on the right a painting by uh, Hugo Robus, who later became a well-known uh, modernist sculptor, but was then focusing on landscape uh, painting. And um, yeah. Um, Warshawski's uh, approach to post-impressionism remained alive and well in Cleveland for decades. But just a year after Warshawski's class, the most adventurous Cleveland artists took another step forward when they discovered the work of the Fauves. Uh, in 1911, uh, William Zorak went to Paris and attended some art classes at the atelier of John Duncan Ferguson, a Scottish colorist who had come under the influence of Matisse. Interestingly, his reason for choosing Ferguson was not artistic, but simply uh, came about because he wanted a teacher uh, who spoke English uh, rather than uh, French. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he almost immediately became captivated by the faux handling of color and form, in large part because he became captivated by one of his fellow students, Marguerite Thompson, whom he eventually uh, married just a year later, an American girl from California who was traveling around uh, the world with her aunt and had settled in Paris uh, for a number of months to take art lessons. Uh, at the time, uh, Zorak was still creating shimmering impressionist landscape paintings such as the ones on the right, very much in the mode of Warshawski. Those are two things painted in Avignon uh, that summer. 
uh, Marguerite Thompson had taken a step forward and was beginning to take creative liberties, not only with color, uh, but with shape. She was producing paintings that combined uh, the bright colors of the post-impressionists with this sort of jigsaw puzzle arrangement of shapes. Uh, Zorak brought works of this type back to Cleveland, and they had immediate influence on artists such as William Summer, as you can see from the painting on the right by Summer, the rabbit hutch, which uh, shows his backyard in Lakewood, which amazingly looks quite similar uh, today, there's even a telephone pole uh, in the same place. Um, here's another work by Summer from about 1912, and you can see how the influences from uh, post-impressionism, poster design, uh, the fauves are starting to flow together. I think that this pinkish color is sort of a clue of uh, fauve influence, and there's also influence from Japanese prints. During this period of 1911-1912, Summer made quite a group of paintings on the estate of Anna Schlather Hobson in Lakewood, which had a watchtower, a Japanese bridge, and a Japanese uh, pavilion. And in these, you can see how he moves from a sort of more literal post-impressionist style to one that is more designed in Japanese and then ultimately to something uh, which clearly reflects uh, the influence of the fauves. And if you put uh, the summer landscape next to Joie de Vivre by Matisse, you can uh, see that he's doing something uh, that is similar. Um, here's a, another Cleveland artist, Clara Dyke, who also became uh, influenced by the fauves uh, in this period. Um, and this influence, interestingly, also starts to show up in poster design. You can see that there's a new palette that comes into American uh, popular uh, imagery in this period. Uh, the final influence is uh, that of the Blue Rider group, since a young uh, Cleveland uh, artist, August Beely, went to Munich uh, in uh, early in 1911 and returned in September 1912. Uh, while in Munich, he attended uh, exhibitions of the Blue Rider group and returned with a copy of the famous uh, Blue Rider uh, Almanac. And shortly after Beely's return, you can see that William Summer starts to do paintings that look like this, that have this sort of electrifying uh, handling of shapes and a kind of visionary ecstatic uh, quality And, of course, what he was doing was uh, looking at uh, the Blue Rider Almanac and other things that Beely uh, brought back with him. Um, Beely himself was doing uh, work very much in the style of the uh, Blue Rider uh, artists. And here's a visionary deposition that uh, Beely created right after his return, which, interestingly, we know that the landscape is that of William Summer's farm in Brandywine, which seems to have been a pretty psychedelic place uh, in those years. Uh, here's a symbolic landscape by William Zorak uh, from 
the same period. And if you put the three together, you can see that there's a rather distinctive Cleveland style of modernism that is combining influences from the Fauves uh, and the Blue Rider group. And not to overwhelm you, but here are some uh, Zorak uh, landscapes, which in a funny way are sort of Matisse's joie de vivre, but with a more German Blue Rider uh, feeling uh, to them. Uh, many of the artists in Cleveland came from uh, a German or Central European background, and for that reason, many of them studied not in Paris, but in Munich or uh, Vienna. Uh, or uh, Here is just sort of going through this progression of William Summer going from an Ashcan school style to a post-impressionist style to one that is clearly at least distantly uh, influenced uh, by Matisse. Um, and this is just to show sort of the lingering affinity with the work of German uh, artists. Uh, this is a somewhat later uh, William Summer uh, watercolor uh, from right around 1930. Um, a final impulse to, to moderni- modernization comes from uh, the Armory Show. Uh, several artists from Cleveland, such as Henry Keller, exhibited uh, in the Armory Show. We know that William Summer uh, visited it. Um, a specific form of influence is that after Summer came back from the Armory Show, he started to do matchstick drawings, which was a technique borrowed from Matisse, where you dip a matchstick in ink and it forces you to make a very firm, very direct uh, line and uh, thus to see form uh, in a new way. Uh, Finally, in the aftermath of the Armory Show, the Taylor Department Store, which is where many of the Cocoon Club exhibitions were held, uh, held an exhibition of Cubist paintings with a catalog written by the Cleveland artist uh, Henry Keller. As a consequence, uh, artists such as Keller uh, start to experiment with Cubist ideas, um, perhaps without fully understanding them, but this becomes a major influence at this time. And uh, this becomes a major influence particularly on uh, William Summer, whose paintings of the 20s and 30s are often a mix of Fauve, Blue, Rider, and uh, Cubist ideas put together in a fairly distinctive uh, Cleveland style. I think one reason that uh, these paintings have been somewhat overlooked as many of the Cleveland artists did their best work in watercolor rather than oil. And this is certainly the case with Summer, who also was producing uh, his best work while he was working full-time as a commercial uh, lithographer for the, uh, f- for the Ottman uh, company, so that um, you know, th- these uh, watercolors were often a kind of uh, weekend uh, release. And uh, these various influences also uh, sort of in ways you might not immediately recognize but start to work their way into American commercial art of this period. This is a uh, William Summer uh, poster where you can see how he is uh, introducing 
in ways we might not even notice effects that are borrowed from modern art. Um, throughout their history, the members of the Cocoon Club, um, they obviously were interested in raising money, and they held auctions of, these work, of their work. Uh, but these were never su- very successful despite attempts to make them uh, glamorous by doing things like uh, posing uh, beautiful women beside the paintings. Um, often their paintings sold for less than the cost of their frames, uh, which obviously wasn't very successful from the fund uh, raising standpoint. In its second year to raise money, the clubs decided to throw a fundraising costume ball at the old Elks Cup. Um, silver-winged butterfly girls greeted the guests who came dressed as Turks, clans, columbines, and cubist forms. After the costume guests had arrived, the lights went on out, and then uh, a group of near-naked men bore a gigantic cocoon through the throng guided by the president of the club dressed as Mephistopheles. They deposited the cocoon on the stage, symbols clashed, and a girl uh, popped out dressed only in a pair of butterfly wings and performed a brief butterfly dance. And then the lights went black again, uh, and uh, the party uh, started. Um, At the time, uh, long skirts and prudery were the mode. The wildest dance in vogue was the waltz, and naturally next day the party was the talk of the town. Uh, The first ball set the pattern for the ones that came afterward. Uh, The record isn't entirely complete, but most of the balls seem to have had a central theme which set the pattern for the entertainment. So one year would be uh, Bacchus and Robin Hood. Um, Omar Khayyam was the theme another year. The typical format one year, for example, uh, the party started with a performance of Chopin's Funeral March while pallbearers carried in a casket. The lid opened slowly, and out of the black box uh, sprang a pretty girl uh, who, um, in, uh, in butterfly uh, costume. Uh, many of the posters for the Cocoon Club contained butterfly uh, imagery, such as this remarkable uh, design by James Hurley Minter of a girl with a caterpillar head and an explosion of caterpillar wings behind her who's manipulating uh, two dancers on uh, a marionette. Um, The party was, uh, oh, and I might say that um, within a few years, uh, they, with the Cocoon Club Ball, they had raised enough money to actually buy a clubhouse. Um, They had started off in small rented rooms above a tailor shop. Um, Throughout uh, the history of the Cocoon Club, uh, the uh, club location moved in. It, sadly, none of the Cocoon Club uh, buildings are now uh, standing. They were all located downtown and were um, were destroyed as as the city, uh, you know, grew larger. Um, the party was always scheduled on Friday since it went on till well after midnight. And if it had been held on Sunday, this would have. Um, been prohibited by the blue laws prohibiting such uh, festivities on Sunday, and it also uh, took at least a day to recover uh, from it. Um, They were also uh, often associated with other sort of 
uh, modernist things in tune with the themes of costumes. For example, Futurist Night of 1915 uh, featured a futurist orchestra, which reportedly sounded like uh, nothing heard before uh, by uh, the human ear. Um, Basically, by about 1913, the Cocoon Club changes from primarily a place to draw from the model to a place where the members are spending much of the year preparing uh, for the Cocoon Club uh, ball, uh, often doing quite spectacular decorations. Here's the Civic Auditorium, which looks a bit like Batman's castle. Uh, Here's uh, another Cocoon Club ball held at uh, Danceland, uh, which featured uh, futurist robots that were about 20 feet tall. Um, in theory, the Cocoon Club was by invitation only since the membership of the club was limited to 35 and the ball was limited to uh, this group and their personal friends. Um, <clears throat> this uh, should have limited the number of people to you know, 100, 150 Uh, By some miraculous process, uh, the attendees at the Cocoon Club Ball continued to enlarge until by the uh, mid-1920s, attendance uh, was somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 people who were showing up uh, for the Cocoon Club uh, Ball. And uh, one of the uh, appeals obviously, was uh, the presence of uh, nude uh, dancers. Uh, Newspaper articles of the time are a little evasive about this and tend to speak in euphemisms, although reading between the lines, it's pretty clear that uh, when the Cocoon Club's favorite model, Mamie Nichols, performed at the Futurist Ball as a bare possibility that she did so stark naked, And um, we know that in 1930, Miss Faith Bacon, a well-known burlesque dancer from New York, uh, performed at the ball. Um, That such nakedness was allowed in Cleveland seems remarkable, uh, but the Cocoon Club members clearly mounted something similar to the insanity defense. Um, They were artists, and artists uh, work with nude models. um, And... uh, I think that uh, what's interesting is uh, how um, how this became part of the mystique of the Cocoon Club, but also had to do with deeper issues of breaking through customary uh, barriers. And um, again, uh, there's an example of um, it's sort of a cocoon club um, ball where someone came wrapped in thought um, when uh, this was during war rationing when um, cloth was being conserved. Um, uh, What's curious about uh, the later history of the cocoon club is that many of the better known artists such as Henry Keller, Frank Wilcox, Paul Travis, Victor Schreckengast seem to have played relatively uh, little role. The stars of the Cocoon Club were mostly commercial artists who slaved over advertisements for most of the year and then let loose with what they produced for the Cocoon Club. The Cocoon Club held an annual uh, competition and basically 
Um, if you won the competition, you did the poster, which was folded in half and sent out as an invitation. Um, for that reason, they're relatively rare because clearly most of them were thrown away. Uh, you know, no one knows how many uh, survive. Uh, the runner-up in the poster uh, competition uh, got to do the tickets uh, or uh, to do the um, envelopes. Um, here's Edwin Summer, uh, the son of William Summer. Um, here's Ray uh, Parmalee, uh, not a well-known uh, artist. The one on the right with the wise old owl was done uh, just a year after the Cocoon Club Ball had been closed down by the mayor, and clearly it's, in, uh, it's sort of encouraging you not to reveal what you saw uh, at the uh, Cocoon Club Ball. Uh, here's the poster by James Harley Minter, which is one of the better-known posters. What's known about James Harley Minter is limited uh, to his one-sentence biography in the Cocoon Club roster for that year. We know that he was born in Oklahoma City in 1905 and that he was admitted to the Cocoon Club in 1930. Uh, otherwise, he's an artist who's unknown to history. Um, I've mentioned various influences that affected the Cocoon Club, but there were uh, other stimulating things that kept it alive. One of them was Laukoff's bookstore in the Cleveland Arcade, uh, run by Richard Laukoff, who was born in Germany and actually worked as an organ builder as a young man, um, but then became involved in, um, in the arts. Uh, it was an unusual bookstore which specialized in little magazines and avant-garde books by people like E. Cummings and James Joyce and Gertrude Stein. And uh, it became a gathering place for people like William Summer and the Cleveland uh, poet uh, Hart Crane. Basically, at Laukoff's bookstore, you could learn about Cubism or German Expressionism or the Blue Rider Group. And... One of the presidents, later presidents of the Cocoon Club, Philip Kaplan, literally decided to become an artist as a young man when he uh, came into uh, Laukoff's bookstore and was converted. Of similar importance was the Cleveland Public Library, run by Linda Eastman, who later played a major role in the WPA. And she acquired... Uh, Modern illustrated books, many of them illustrated by pochoir, a uh, stencil process. And these included books on cubism, expressionism, costume design, and other subjects. In 1931, to aid guests in devising their costume, the Cocoon Club even sent out a reading list of uh, books in the public library which should be uh, consulted. Uh, and finally, in 1915, the Ballet Russe came to Cleveland and uh, introduced uh, Clevelanders to flamboyant costumes and colors. Charles Birchfield, for example, later remembered the arrival of the Ballet Russe as one of the transformative uh, experiences of uh, his life as an artist. The Cocoon Club Ball was elaborately uh, covered by Cleveland social magazines such as The Bystander, which would devote a whole issue to the ball. <coughs> Costumes were often um, 
highly creative. Interestingly, a number of them survive, some at Kent State, which has a major costume collection, some in the Western Reserve Historical Society, and some of in the families of descendants of uh, Cocoon Club uh, members. And by the 1920s, uh, planning one's costume uh, had become a serious affair, and you had to get through the screening committee uh, to get into the ball, so that if you uh, merely uh, wore an ordinary circus costume, uh, they might not let you in, uh, though apparently completely transparent uh, costume uh, was allowed, as you can uh, discover by careful uh, study of this uh, photograph. Uh, here's William Summer uh, in a ball in the late teens wearing a costume which is clearly based on what Picasso had done in the ballet parade just two or three years before. I think one of the surprising things is how quickly artistic influences were disseminated uh, in the early uh, 20th century. Um, and the Cocoon Club held special evenings to prepare for the event where they offered uh, costume designs created by Cocoon Club uh, members, consultation with the local seamstress, uh, Madame Sarita, and consultation on your makeup from a local makeup artist, Murray uh, Butler, for local theatrical uh, posters. Um, here are some of the posters for the Cocoon Club Ball. Um, many of them feature uh, Mephistopheles and a female dancer. They often play on the theme of marionettes. Uh, they have an interesting iconography, which I would have to say is sometimes decipherable and uh, sometimes a little uh, bewildering. Here you can see there's a great interest in spotlights, which must have been uh, very new uh, in this period. Uh, here's... Uh, another poster by uh, Rolf Stoll on the Mephistopheles theme, and this one, of course, is based on dynamic symmetry, which was a popular design theory of the period. Uh, this is more arcane uh, Cocoon Club uh, imagery. This is by Joseph Jika, and it shows Agni, the Indian god of fire, who's descending from the sky with his consort in order to attend the Cocoon Club Ball. And uh, it's clear that uh, Jika's costume for that year is sort of one of the elements that goes uh, into the poster. And interestingly enough, you can't help wondering if posters of this sort had an influence on Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who, while still teenagers at Central High School in Cleveland, came up with the idea of Superman, the first comic book uh, superhero, uh, which is obviously in many ways similar to this Cocoon Club imagery. Here's another Joseph Chica poster, which shows Midas uh, touching dancers with a wand and making them turn into gold. Uh, and then there are a few mystery posters which are hard to figure out. And let me show you one. Uh, this one I think I understand, though I'm not positive. Uh, I think that the um, dark statue-like figure in the foreground is the cocoon of the spirit of modern art, uh, which is bursting uh, out of its cocoon and uh, about to join the dance. Uh, perhaps the most desirable of the Cocoon Club uh, posters is one with a uh, poem by 
uh, the great uh, Cleveland poet Hart Crane, author of The Bridge. Uh, this is the poem that's on the poster, which doesn't appear elsewhere in uh, Crane's collected uh, works. Clearly, this is another um, woman who is manipulating dancer figures on a string. Uh, her hands are uh, a little peculiar, though that may be related to the Hart Crane poem, where he talks about splayed like cards uh, from a loose hand. Uh, it's not at all clear to me why she's wearing a surgical mask. Uh, and so if any of you have explanations of that fact, I'd love to uh, have you explain it to me. Um, here's the poster by uh, Minter. And then the second prize in the poster competition uh, were used for uh, tickets. Uh, for about 15 years, the Cocoon Club uh, basically focused the minds of everyone in Cleveland on modern art. I've mentioned that uh, in, by the 1920s, as many as 3,000 people were showing up for the Cocoon Club Ball. Uh, what is startling is how quickly the Cocoon Club Ball uh, collapsed, and the explanation, obviously enough, uh, is the Depression. Uh, in 1930, the ball was well-intended, but in 1931, it was so poorly attended that it lost money. In 1932, there was no ball at all. And in 1933, when the ball reemerged from hibernation, as you can see, it was diminished in size and it was suffering from the blues. And uh, this basically began uh, the decline of the Cocoon Club. Uh, the members were aging. In some way, the energy seems to have departed. Uh, while in 1933, Miss uh, Faith Bacon, attired in the costume of Eve, did a fan dance, the response was muted, and one member of the audience, George Young, who operated a local burlesque house, was even caught uh, yawning a few times. Um, the theme of the year for the costumes was uh, cellophane, but apparently, um, and um, a reporter noted time was when the casual observer would have had difficulty in telling Miss Bacon from some of the paying customers, but apparently those days are over. Um, and uh, th there was one uh, last attempt at a comeback where uh, they attempted to use Dayglow paint. Interestingly, uh, Molman's last business venture was to invest in uh, Dayglow, but that uh, also seems to have been uh, not uh, successful. And there were several things uh, going on, but one was the Depression. The other was that printing technology was starting to change, and posters were changing from being uh, hand-done, uh, hand-drawn on the stone to being reproduced uh, photographically. Uh, at its height in the teens, uh, Cleveland had approximately 5,000 uh, commercial artists and about 300 uh, artists who were somehow uh, associated with the uh, art schools. And uh, that number quickly uh, dwindled. You can trace a sort of typical exodus. Most of them uh, first went to New York, and many of them ultimately uh, ended up in uh, Hollywood. 
Um, and um, there are a number of notable things about Cleveland modernism which are surprising, but one of the most uh, interesting is that it was produced almost entirely by commercial artists such as William Summer, William Zorak, August Beely, uh, Henry Keller, uh, Hugo Robus. And the teachers in the art school, such as Frederick Gottwald, were much more uh, conservative. Uh, modernism did work its way into the Cleveland School, however, largely through the efforts of Louis Rorimer, who ran a very successful design and decorating firm and became involved with the management of Statler Hotels. And basically, uh, Rorimer was briefly head of the design department at the Cleveland School of Art, and he basically uh, introduced a modernist faculty. But all the modern painters at the Cleveland School were members of the design department, people like Keller, uh, Frank Wilcox, um, the teachers of people like uh, Victor Schreckengast and uh, Charles Birchfield. Uh, just a footnote is that Louis Wormer's son was James Wormer, who became director of the Metropolitan Museum, who acquired the Aristotle contemplating the bust of Homer, and also was one of the uh, major monuments men played by Matt Damon in the current uh, <laughs> monuments man uh, movie. Uh, decay and dissolution is depressing to dwell on, and I think that one of the curious things is that just when the, the Kuhn Club uh, met its demise is when a generation that had emerged from it uh, became really the first figures of national and uh, international stature in Cleveland. One of them is Charles Birchfield, who was the subject of Alfred Barr's first one-man show at the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, I think it's evident that Birchfield comes very much out of the work of people like uh, William Summer and uh, Henry Keller and so forth. Um, then there's the incredibly versatile uh, Victor Schreckengast, who was a sculptor, a potter, uh, a painter, uh, is perhaps chiefly known for his industrial designs, including things like the first cab over engine truck, uh, and is also remembered for the jazz ball, which is probably the greatest single example of American uh, art deco. And finally, there's Margaret Burke White, who basically was uh, Cleveland's best industrial uh, photographer. She was also quite nice looking, caught the eye of Henry Luce, and uh, went on to create some of the great uh, journalistic photographs of the uh, 20th century. Um, Yeah, and I think it's it's Victor, uh, you know, with the jazz ball, you can definitely see the Cocoon Club influence uh, very uh, clearly. Uh, what did the Cocoon Club stand for? I think what's interesting is that it mixed things up uh, in an extraordinary way. And, in fact, it's a classic example of a phenomenon known as the Carnivalesque, which is written about by a... Uh, Russian writer Mikhail Bakhtin, who wrote a book about uh, Rabelais. Uh, the Cocoon Club was the first club in Cleveland that 
uh, mixed up members both by social class because it had artists but also wealthy uh, businessmen, uh, by ethnic group it had immigrants from Hungary, Bohemia, Germany, Italy, Switzerland, England, and Russia. It mixed together Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. It basically uh, provided a uh, model for a uh, new, uh, more uh, modern uh, looser way of thinking about things. Um, and I think that um, what's interesting also is that clearly uh, the uh, club um, had an extraordinary influence on uh, introducing uh, color and life into Cleveland art in a way that uh, not only is part of the history of modern art, but also of American popular culture, because such an enormous amount of uh, poster design and uh, book illustration and so forth was being done in Cleveland in that period. So thank you. I probably went on a little too long. Too long but, uh. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. <laughs>